Hi, and welcome to Listen Up A-Holes, the only Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast that quite fancies its bacon. I'm Joshua Unruh, superhero scholar from Pulp Diction Productions. And I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media. Together, we are working our way through the good, the bad, and the jarvelous of the MCU. So listen up, A-Holes. We're going to talk about Agent Carter Season 2, Episodes 4 through 7. Alright, Lonnie, look at this. It's something that's sort of kind of near and dear to my actual real-life heart. Yay! I'm excited! Whitney Frost is from (laughs) Broxton, Oklahoma. Wow! Now, I am not from Broxton, Oklahoma, but I am Mm -hmm. very much from Oklahoma, both to my positive and my negative. You know, it is what it is. It's a mixed bag, (laughs) right? But I do know of Broxton, Oklahoma, because it is a real place in Caddo County. Uh Uh-huh. But it's an unincorporated town, which means it's kind of like real estate limbo. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But since, you know, next year, Oklahoma might revert to tribal ownership, depending on what the Supreme Court decides to do, it might Uh be really interesting for all of us here in the great state of Oklahoma Uh in real estate limbo. I don't know if if you've all heard about that. I'm not going into it now. Go look up tribal ownership of Oklahoma and a Supreme Court case. It's absolutely fascinating. Oh, that does sound fascinating. I haven't heard anything about that, but that does sound fascinating. There is what I would call at this point kind of a slim chance that over half of the state will just revert to tribal ownership. It's really interesting. And I thought of that, again, like I say, because Broxton is an unincorporated town, which is not the same kind of real estate limbo, but it just, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. that's so topical. It's on my mind. Right, right, right. Sure. But there are two reasons that Broxton is Whitney's hometown. Mm -hmm. There is a boring real world reason and there is a weird 616 reason. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. So the boring real world reason is that 1930s and 40s Oklahoma is actually a really good setting for a character who wants to get out of a dead end shithole situation. Right. Mm -hmm. As many of you know, since you were probably forced to read or watch a movie version of The Grapes of Wrath by John Uh Steinbeck, the Depression was particularly difficult on the Great Plains states in the USA and some provinces in Canada. Mm hmm. Drought combined with irresponsible farming techniques resulted in massive dust storms that were dubbed the Dust Bowl. If nothing else, you've probably heard that phrase. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Some of these storms were so big that they literally moved topsoil from Oklahoma and Kansas all the way to the East Coast. Wow. Anybody who could afford to get out of Oklahoma did so, mostly moving to California, which Mm -hmm. is where the term Oki comes from. It's actually supposed to be a pejorative, like all these poor people that just showed up on our doorsteps and expected us to pick oranges are just (laughs) Okies. Mm -hmm. Like so many of the things that we should be ashamed of, Oklahoma took that like a badge of honor. I'm looking at you, University of Oklahoma, who (laughs) named yourself after criminals. Oh, God. Many people could not even afford that desperate of a move. And that looks like to be the situation of Whitney and her mom, right? Mm-hmm. They're just stuck. They can't even right. afford to get in a wagon or a cheap vehicle and drive west. They're mm-hmm. stuck. 
So that's the real world reason. It is a very good use of the time frame that Peggy Carter is set in to give Whitney a desperate and important reason to get out of Broxton. Now, <laughs> the fantastical reason. Whoo! <laughs> Once upon a time in the 616, Ragnarok happened. Uh-huh. Odin died in battle with the fire giant Surt. Thor became king. Loki found the forge on which Mjolnir had been created and forged new magic hammers for all his allies. And then Asgard fell, killing every single Asgardian. Uh-huh. Donald Blake. Remember that guy? I do remember that guy. Uh-huh. That's, yeah. He <laughs> summons Thor from the void of nothingness. And mm -hmm. Thor sets about rebuilding Asgard and collecting the souls of his fellow Asgardians from their new mortal hosts. Mm-hmm. For some reason, Thor decided new Asgard should be in Oklahoma. <laughs> so he bought some land just outside Broxton with an actual flatbed truck of Asgardian gold. Wow. And then when he conjured Asgard back into existence, he raised it about 20 feet above the ground with the Odin force. Okay. <laughs> and there it remained until Norman Osborn's siege. Uh-huh. Although it was eventually destroyed again during the War of the Serpent, whereupon the reborn Odin moved it back to its original multidimensional location in the first of many moves that would cement Odin as such a dick, you guys. <laughs> but that is the two reasons that Whitney Frost is from Broxton, Oklahoma. These writers were it. nodding at a couple of things. I love it. I wonder if one of the writers was from Broxton or if there was some kind of connection there. It seems pretty unlikely. I mean, this was just because it's a Broxton, Oklahoma, but maybe. <laughs> you don't I mean, know. maybe. Yeah. Uh, that said, Asgard being in Broxton was still pretty fresh uh, on mm -hmm. the mind. I, I lose track of exactly when these comic books came out because, you know, this was a story that went on over different you know oh, sure. titles and over time but i mean this would have been pretty fresh when they were working on this show so if somebody mm -hmm. said was like we need a dirt hole town for whitney to get out of whoever was responsible for like naming whitney frost's movies and stuff like that would be like <laughs> broxton oklahoma <laughs> there you go now the other thing that i really want to talk about from this set of episodes is heroes teaming up with villains oh my god it's one of my favorite things ever i love it so much <laughs> it's pretty great and thanks to peggy feeling forced to break Dottie out of the Hooskow so they could mm -hmm. be in cahoots on a caper. I'd like to talk about that fine, time-honored tradition of superheroes deciding they're so backed against the wall that they have no allies except their greatest enemies. Mm -hmm. Here's a few of my favorites. <laughs> Once, there was a Batman cartoon that realized Batman is an adventure character meant to bring joy to children and is not, in fact, Edgelord Byron. <laughs> It was therefore a superior Batman cartoon, and mm -hmm. once, for a season finale, Batman went to an alternate universe to team up with good guy versions of all his villains in order to take out bad guy versions of all his superhero friends. Oh my god, I love that. It's pretty great, and when he returned to his own Earth, Owlman, his own evil doppelganger, uh -huh. had stolen one of Batman's outfits and his car and went on a crime spree. Oh god. Now all of Batman's friends believe that Batman has gone bad and there's only one man the caped crusader can turn to. Mm -hmm. The clown prince of crime. The <laughs> harlequin of hate. The Joker. 
And not only that, but this cartoon characterizes the Joker as like Bob Hope from his heyday, only super evil. Wow. There are not enough chef kisses in the world for that. It's delightful. <laughs> I love it. But this is a Marvel show, so I'm mm-hmm. going to tell you about two great examples of heroes teaming up with villains in the mighty Marvel manner. Mm-hmm. So you heard me talk about Dr. Doom before. Yep. Mm-hmm. Legit the greatest supervillain that's ever lived. Uh-huh. He looks like he could maybe pull off anti-hero if you squinted real hard because he's a Ooh. principled man of honor. But really, that is total that. bullshit. Total <laughs> bullshit. Because Doom's ego cannot allow anyone else in the room with even the barest hint of more capability than him. Oh, that's too bad. Well, it's too bad, but it also makes Doom Doom, and it's Mm -hmm. good. That is a good thing. But that inability to deal with anyone who might be as capable or more capable is why, after decades of failing to save his mother's soul from hell by battling demons every Midsummer's Eve, Mm -hmm. he decided to call the only person he'd admit might have as much mystical might as himself, Doctor Strange the Sorcerer Supreme. All right. But Doom does not ask for favors. (laughs) doom fulfills complicated eldritch rites that allow him to force the sorcerer supreme to help him as a good villain should yeah you know know thyself right yeah right so of course the pair go off to hell to battle their way to doom's mother Mm mm-hmm Once they find her, Doom double-crosses Strange and gives him to Mephisto in trade for his mother's soul. Of course he does. He's a self-respecting villain. Of course he does. Uh, Yeah, just like the frog and scorpion drowned, friends. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. Yeah. However, Doom's mother is so horrified by this act of evil that she refuses the trade. Oh, my God. But... This was Doom's plan all along, because an act of such selfless goodness released her to heaven. Oh. And Doom saves his mother from hell while returning to Earth, owing nobody nothing. Oh my God, I love all of that so much. And it brings this wonderful (laughs) vulnerability to Dr. Doom, which is a fabulous thing to do with your villains. I mean, giving them vulnerability and making them somebody that even as we know they're doing terrible things, we're like, oh my God, you know, you're kind of, you kind of sympathize, you kind of feel for him, you know? Oh my God, that's fabulous. I agree 100%. You know how we talked about like how Hank Pym's biggest problem is that he's always the third smartest guy in the room and he can never let that go, you know? Yeah. Doom is sort of an equal but opposite problem where he usually is the smartest person in the room, but really needs to prove that pretty much all the time. You know, it's not that different than Hank. It's just... Mm bigger and more doomful, you know. Uh, But you're right. When he has the vulnerability, when you see that that vanity Mm -hmm. is such a thin veneer, you know. Yeah. When he's been godfather to his most hated enemy's daughter, that's also another one of those times when it's like, oh, he's got a soft spot for Valeria. That's very dangerous. Oh, my God. (laughs) I think I may love this guy. You should love Doom. He only refers to himself (laughs) in the third person. He's like a glam rock supervillain. It's amazing. Oh, my God. God. (laughs) So I have one more example, and it's a very good one. And I am to some extent stealing the thunder, pardon the pun, from future Josh. (laughs) But Ragnarok is a long ways away, and I can bitch about that again later in a different context. So. Oh, absolutely. Yes. There's this Thor villain, Scourge the Executioner. 
Aha. He's a badass with an axe, but he's not one of the mm -hmm. world's great thinkers. Mm -hmm. He's in love with the Enchantress and does her evil bidding just to be close to her and also because he was born in Jotunheim and Asgardians are kind of dicks about that. Right. Mm -hmm. For one brief shining moment, Scourge realized that the only person who had never done him dirty was Thor. Oh. And so he joined Thor and the Einhariar on a suicide mission mm -hmm. to hell to rescue mortal souls imprisoned there unjustly. After some victories, Hela even offered Scourge a treasured place at her side, and he rejected her, destroying the oh ship God. of the dead. Let me pause there. That's the ship that will bring all of the dead from hell to Earth, made out of like the uh -huh. fingernails of dead people, the fingernails and toenails of dead people. It is not what we call the romance that we all wanted there to be between Scourge and Hela. Okay, that's right. it's different, but. <laughs> He destroys that ship and forestalls Ragnarok. Mm -hmm. And when it became clear that someone would have to hold the line and likely die in the process so that the heroes could escape with the mortal souls, Thor volunteered. But Scourge, uh -huh. knowing the world needs a hero more than an executioner, knocked him out and sought redemption in a blaze of glory. Oh, my God. Yes, he requested only one reward, and that was that Thor would drink to his memory in Asgard. Oh my God. And when Scourge stood there and allowed no demon to pass, he was eventually overrun and killed. But Hela mm -hmm. herself celebrated him saying, he stood alone at Gyalabru, and that answer is enough. Oh my God, okay, well like, these are some great episodes of Peggy Carter. <laughs> But those are some fabulous villain stories. Well, thank you. I love that. Thank you those very much. Those are really, really great. Those are really great. I am excited. This is going to make me start reading this stuff. Okay. I'm going to say to you. <laughs> These bad guy stories. Give me all your best villain stories. I'll be in. <laughs> I'm going to say to you that uh, that we could actually enjoy those two episodes of uh, Batman, the Brave and the Bold in about 44 minutes. Uh -huh. and, I, and I think you would enjoy like getting to see evil versions of good guys and good versions of evil guys, right? Very oh, much. I love that. Give me a bizarro world, man. I'm in. I am in. I love that stuff. That's what Earth 3 is entirely. Uh -huh. Earth 3 is all evil versions of good guys, good versions of evil guys. And in fact, the rules of the universe are flipped so that evil always wins. Oh, my God. Yeah, the, the Justice wow. League is the crime syndicate of America spelled with a K. It's a whole thing. <laughs> I love it. There's something about putting that K in there that just makes everything more evil. Um, I'm not going to talk about it a whole lot right now because I'm now also realizing I should probably get you to read a particular Justice League story written by Grant Morrison and drawn by Frank Quitely, the same guys that did All-Star Superman. If you like the uh -huh. sound of that, Dr. Kelly Jones of Still Dead and I talked at length about All-Star Superman in a patron-exclusive show. So... If you yes. haven't heard that but want mm -hmm. to, become a patron and check that out. And those two guys did a story uh, that was, at the time, confusingly called Earth 2. Don't worry about it. And I feel like I should get you to read that and we should chat about it. Also, all right, this thing that ends with Scourge the Executioner is part of what is mm -hmm. one of the best. Like, it was from about the early 80s. It ran through a, lot, a big chunk of the 80s. It, Walt Simonson's mm -hmm. run on Thor. Um a lot, some bits and pieces of it found their way into Ragnarok, especially the parts with Scourge. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it is just 
epic and huge and it's so good and it is another one of those where i could say you'll be at it for a minute because it ran for several years but you would mm-hmm. definitely feel satisfied with everything that happens I in that story it. so I love it. That sounds some, like some fabulous, fabulous narrative. But I got to say, we're here to talk about Peggy Carter. So let's go ahead and do that. In Smoke and Mirrors, Peggy tries to help Jason Wilkes figure out his non-corporeal dilemma, but he seems to be most concerned with the fact that he can't kiss her until the zero matter starts cracking into his view of reality. Uh, asterisk, same. <laughs> Jarvis and Peggy stake out Whitney Frost, who hasn't been seen, but they find and kidnap her henchman. He gives up the Council of Nine at the Arena Club, and Peggy and Sousa decide to conduct a raid. But just before they're about to go, Vernon Masters comes in and interferes with an audit, because there's nothing you can't kill with paperwork. Sousa manages to get a tissue sample from Jane Scott, the first victim of Zero Matter. Unable to raid the Arena Club, they put a listening device on the henchman and listen as he tells Whitney Frost that he was taken, a confession that is followed by Frost consuming him in zero matter as he screams. Smoke and Mirrors aired on February 2nd, 2016 and was written by Sue Chung and directed by David Platt. In The Atomic Job, Wilkes discovers that he can manipulate the zero matter from Jane Scott's tissue sample and he becomes temporarily corporeal. He knows where Jane Scott's body is in a cold storage unit in town. Wilkes thinks that if he has the body, he can cure himself. Meanwhile, Sousa finally asks Violet to marry him, and she says yes. Jarvis and Peggy break into the cold storage unit to get Jane Scott's body, but Frost gets there first and sucks all the zero matter out of Jane Scott. Wilkes tells them that Frost is going to try and replicate the conditions around the initial zero matter blast, which means she's going to need an atomic bomb. They get a five-man band together to pull off the heist. Sousa, Peggy, Jarvis, Rose, and a socially awkward scientist named Samberly and head out to get the bomb out of the Roxxon facility before Frost does. They manage to take the uranium cores out of the bomb and foil Frost's plans, but Peggy has a confrontation with Frost that ends with her falling into a construction zone and being impaled by rebar. Sousa brings a bleeding Peggy to Violet's, and Violet treats her, but not before seeing that Sousa is clearly in love with Peggy. Jarvis takes Peggy back to the Stark Mansion to heal, and as Wilkes visits with her, he starts to fade away into another dimension. The Atomic Job aired on February 9th, 2016, and was written by Lindsay Allen and directed by Craig Zisk. In Life of the Party, Jarvis tends to Peggy's injury at the mansion, while Anna looks on, finding it all very alarming. Wilkes needs more zero matter in order to build a containment chamber to keep him corporeal until he can figure out how to fix his situation permanently, so they decide they need to get it from Frost. They plan an undercover mission at a Chadwick fundraiser, but since Peggy can't do the job, they decide to spring Dottie Underwood and get her to get a blood sample from Frost. Peggy and Sousa monitor the goings-on from a van nearby while Jarvis accompanies Dottie at the fundraiser. Jack Thompson is there with Vernon Masters, and he can ID Dottie, so they have to avoid him. But he does see Jarvis and knows that something is up. Dottie gets the sample, but instead of heading back, she ditches her listening device and hides out at the council meeting. At the meeting, Chadwick tries to double-cross Frost, and Frost takes out half the council and her husband with the zero matter, and then tells the remaining members that she's their new boss. While Jarvis searches for Dottie, Sousa tells Peggy that Violet broke their engagement because she thinks he's in love with Peggy. They are about to kiss when a body falls on the van. Dottie got out of the meeting room but met up with Thompson and some agents intent on taking her in, and she sent one of them flying out the window. Jarvis finds the zero matter sample, but Dottie is in the wind. 
Thompson shows up at the Stark mansion the next day, telling Peggy he's going to take her back to New York. She refuses, and he tells her she's fired if she doesn't go with him. So she quits. Oh, and also, Whitney has Dottie chained up in a crate. Life of the Party aired on February 16th, 2016, and was written by Eric Pearson and directed by Craig Fisk. In Monsters, Susa and Peggy attend Frost's public announcement that her husband and a bunch of the council guys were lost at sea. Peggy suspects that Frost will be after Dottie. They need to find her first. Susa agrees and then suggests that they make some time to talk soon. Peggy awkwardly agrees. In a basement, Vernon Masters desperately tries to interrogate Dottie to find out what Peggy Carter wants, but he's way out of his league. He injects her with truth serum and she laughs at him. At the Stark Mansion, Anna assembles the containment chamber for Wilkes under his instruction. He starts to fade away, and the place he's fading to is not good. Frost brings in a mobster named Manfredi to be her new sidekick, and he pulls Masters out of his ineffectual interrogation with Dottie. She tells him that she needs the exact uranium rods that Peggy stole, and to leave Dottie to her. Frost gives her a bit of the zero matter touch, and Dottie spills like a cheap bottle of perfume, and tells Frost about the blood sample. At the Stark Mansion, Wilkes steps into his containment chamber, becomes corporeal, and immediately plants one on Peggy in front of everyone. Masters shows up at the SSR office and tells Sousa he wants the uranium rods Peggy stole. Sousa plays dumb and Masters relieves him of his position, taking over the LA office. A signal comes from Dottie's necklace and Peggy plans to go get Dottie. Jarvis is worried that it's a trap, but Peggy isn't. She knows it's a trap. Anna worries about Jarvis, but tells him she supports his need to have his adventures. Peggy and Jarvis go to get Dottie with a concussive device of Starks that fails to go off when Jarvis puts in the code. Jarvis and Peggy are taken by Frost's guys and put in the basement with Dottie. A few hours later, the device goes off. Jarvis put in the delay code. It takes out the men, but when Frost isn't there, Peggy figures out that she's after the uranium, which is in the Stark mansion. When they get there, Frost is making off with the uranium, and she shoots Anna in the stomach to distract them so she can get away. At the hospital, Peggy comforts Jarvis while Anna goes into surgery. Monsters aired on February 16th, 2016, and was written by Brandon Easton and directed by Meeton Hussein. All right, so Joshua, um, these episodes, I kind of love them. I mean, okay, they have flashbacks, and I'm not a fan. I don't like the flashbacks. I don't. No, I do mind them. I was going to say, I don't mind them. No, I do mind them. They're in and of themselves. The scenes in and of themselves are not bad. Yes. But the flashbacks kind of put this like dead air into the narrative. And the narrative itself is so great. I'm enjoying it so much that like, I don't care. I don't care why Whitney Frost is angry about not being able to be a woman in science. I mean, I don't need to see her background to know that this brilliant woman was not going to get the same opportunities as a man like we know that because we live here in the world right, yeah. that exists the way that it does um and the fact that peggy you know received it was a bletchley circle girl and then received her you know um appointment into the ssr and was going to get married and they didn't take it because her brother died and her brother saw something like all that i don't care I don't care that she made that decision because a man told her that that's what she should be. I don't care. Like none of that, none of that really like speaks to like, I understand we have these women, they were living in a time in which women were not allowed to do the things that they wanted to do um, or that they were capable of doing. And that's fine. I don't need to see all this flashback. I didn't particularly care for it. What did you think about the flashbacks? Did you enjoy them? Well, they're, it's really a mixed bag uh, because 
I really do, you know, as you say, like the individual scenes themselves, but right. they you're absolutely right that they aren't necessary and they're not unnecessary in the way flashbacks usually are when we talk about them. It's right. it's more like to me they're unnecessary because we can already see that Whitney is a kind of opposite number for Peggy. Yes. Absolutely. She's not as on the nose an opposite number as Dottie was in season one, but we can see it. We we can see that these are two very talented women who are in one way or another having to hide their light under a bushel. Um, right. Drawing such distinct parallels between their childhoods does not. It, it's beating us over the head with it, you know. It really is. And I mean, they're not that like they are reflecting on each other. We're showing that both of these exceptional women were shut down, you know, and that they responded to that differently, except that, you know, Whitney's background was clearly abusive, was clearly not a safe environment for her. Um, And, you know, and really difficult. I think that her mother was probably doing the best she could with what options she had, Um, you know, but it's different from what Peggy went through. And, and the idea that Peggy wasn't the, um, you know, she didn't want, she didn't go after anything. Whitney was going after stuff actively. We're seeing Peggy being passive and I'm going to get married. Like, yeah. 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 And then changes her mind because her brother dies. Like, I don't, I don't see that. Like Peggy is Peggy knows who she is, and uh, and you know, of course, that's something that you come to. She may not have always known who she is, um, but I would think that what I would expect more from Peggy is that she was in Bletchley Circle, she was doing the codes, she was you know one of the code girls, and then she would pursue a position as an agent. Like that's what I would see, and then her getting slapped down, how she responds to that. So even though they are kind of a reflection on each other, they're not exactly, really. And so even that, which is probably the strongest argument for these flashbacks, is kind of weak. Well, and to me, the worst part of that weakness is that it makes Peggy look bad. It, these these flashbacks yeah. do not do Peggy any favors. And if we were doing a no. story that was, I mean, we don't need a Peggy origin story. It's fine. But if we were doing right. one, then we could spend some time on it and really frame it as her mm-hmm. having a lot of internal, you know, conflict yeah. and anxiety about what she's supposed to be right. versus what she is and what the war made her do and and this guy and her brother. But as it is, yeah, it just really paints Peggy in a much weaker light. Because because at the end of the day, men are telling her what to do, whether she's marrying them or they're her brother. So exactly. um, Now, men are also telling Whitney what to do. But Whitney also tells those men where they can put it unless and until she Mm -hmm. can use them, even when she's relatively naive. Like she knows she's going to have to do some stuff she does not want to do with this agent. And I am not advocating Mm -hmm. that as a lifestyle. This is like make your own choices. You know, mm-hmm. but she's backed into a corner that Peggy is not backed into in any way. It just it does not right. do the favors for Peggy that I think they wanted it to. Well, and it just isn't that interesting. So right. uh, for me, like the the flashbacks are, are complete. You know, I would have cut those flashbacks. Absolutely. And put more time into the story, because the story that we have going on here is really, really fun. I mean, this yes. first episode of Smoke and Mirrors. This is the one with all the flashbacks. This is the one that's kind of slow. Uh, But once we get moving through the other three episodes, I mean, this stuff really starts to rock. You know, Um, I love Peggy, like our modern day Peggy throughout this whole run. She's fantastic. 
So there's this point where Peggy has the henchman, right? And she's saying, we're not going to torture you. And he says, that's your problem, really. People on your side have a line that you just can't cross. And she says, oh, I was saying we're not going to torture you because we just don't have time, you know? And so she injects him with this very bad cold strain and tells him that it's malaria, which is fabulous. Like, I love all of this from her. Um, I love everything that she does here. I love the heist. I love um, the way I know it's a trap, but she's going in. Um, I just love how tough she is throughout this whole thing. I love when she quits on Thompson and tells him to take his job and shove it. Um, All of this stuff is so great. And it's such great Peggy. And the flashbacks in the beginning, you know, and and this is granted in the middle of the season, but it's the beginning of the run that we're doing for this episode. um, That just felt like a really super slow start getting into all these wonderful Peggy moments. I mean, I think probably one of my favorite Peggy moments is the mind zapper with Ray Wise, (laughs) you know, where she just keeps having... And then when she's at his belt buckle, she's like, you're saving the world. You're saving the world. You're saving the world. I mean, this is a woman who can face down a nuclear bomb with no problem. She's totally cool. But she has to talk herself through it when she gets to Ray Wise's belt buckle. And I love it. Listen, you don't know what kind of biological warfare you're going to find down there. I, yes, I imagine it's going to be pretty horrible, whatever it is. I want to, I want to circle back to the injecting the henchman scene just for a moment, because I am going to complain about this scene lightly. As great as Peggy Uh is in it, I am exhausted with our heroes torturing people for information. I'm just... It's Mm -hmm. not even Peggy Carter's fault, because I actually think that as these scenes go, this one is very clever, because this is a man who's ready for pliers and ball-ping hammers. Right. And she gave him a cold. And she comes at him in the brain. She messed with his head. Yes. Right. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. as these things go, this one is very clever and very low-key, but I just just want to say to the world, writers, knock it the fuck off, you guys. It doesn't actually work, and it makes our heroes look like assholes. Stop it. It makes our heroes war criminals. I mean, it does, you know? Yes. Um, There's a Geneva Convention against this sort of thing for a reason. And I think that I do give it a pass here because what she does is give him basically a headache and the sniffles. So the reality of his physical situation, she does put him through, like, fear and and you know emotional like you know trauma a little bit you know also because he knows that if he gives anything up he's other people are going to kill him she may not but other people are going to kill him so um so she's using the momentum of the situation that he already has himself in you know to her advantage this is a circumstance with like the raindrop and the hurricane thing that i've talked about before that you know that an individual raindrop like having an individual moment like one of these at one point during a story you can look at it and be like they're trying to save millions of lives they're doing what they have to do it's distasteful but blah 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 but over and over and over again culturally we have seen i mean and and of course I don't think we have any worse offender than um, than 24, right? right? Yeah. With uh, Kiefer Sutherland, right? Where he was just torturing the hell out of people and he was our hero, you know, because he's trying to stop terrorism. Um, but, but those kinds of things, when you see the heroes do things that are bad and there are no consequences and there's no question about it, we have that over and over and over again. The message that's being sent is that torture is acceptable. Um, and that it works. And it's effective, which it, which it does not. Yeah, and it's yeah. effective. It's not effective. Even if it was effective, it would be a highly questionable practice. But the fact that it's not makes it even more offensive than it already is. Um, so, so Peggy playing like mental games with this guy 
is okay by me. Like, I'm good with that. But when you put this raindrop as part of that hurricane, yeah, it's troubling. Yeah, that's that's where I'm at. Like, this is, as those mm-hmm. things go, a very clever example. But there's just so damn many of yeah. them that I would like everybody to knock it off, please. Like, just put a pin in yes. it. Moratorium. Come on. So... That's enough. And Let's I, just not do that anymore. Yeah. And I'm not sure I have anything else to complain about this entire episode. Let's find out. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. All this stuff is so good. It's really good. Um, but one of, the things, one of the things I don't like, though, I just don't, I don't like Wilkes. Here is Wilkes, right? His body is non-corporeal. Like, he is getting pulled into some kind of weird-ass dimension yeah. that looks pretty dark. Right. Um, And all he can think about is the fact that he can't kiss Peggy. Now, I'm a romance person. Like, I love romance. (laughs) I love these stories. But I'm sorry. When you're dying and all you're thinking about is how you can kiss this girl, like, oh, my God. And then the second he becomes corporeal, he pulls her through these, you know, washing machine tubes. Right. (laughs) That have been spray painted with copper, you know, and plants one on her uncomfortably in front of everybody you know it's so awkward it's so uncomfortable and the thing is that like i i want to like this character there's a lot of stuff that i do like about this character i like that he's a black man at a time you know Mm -hmm. in which we're talking about all these things that women are not allowed to do um we're talking a little bit about what what you know black people have been not allowed to do and not allowed to access with their incredible talents you know and anything i can't even imagine what would be more frustrating than talent and passion you know subverted you know being unable to express what genius you have in whatever area that is being unable to to live in that has got to be just terrible and i i like that discussion i like the opportunity for that discussion but making this dude all about peggy now i love peggy i am a straight woman i'm about as straight as it gets and i look at peggy and i think yeah i get it but (laughs) you know to a certain degree but you know wilkes has got all of this other stuff going on and i want to see him focused on that i want to see him focused on himself rather than trying to get a smooch with this woman he's known for days if he had been in love with her for years and he thought he was gonna die like that's one thing they have not known each other that long there is not a huge you know build up of history underneath this relationship mm-hmm. And even if they had, even if they had, you're getting pulled into a hell dimension. The nookie can wait. Yeah. You know, um, we, I think what we really yeah. liked about Wilkes mm-hmm. was that this was yeah. his job in the first act. Yeah. But they left it as his job in the second act when his situation has completely changed. And it's like they just didn't want to deal with him. So they didn't progress him. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. which I get there's a lot going on, but it's also like maybe just have him not flirt. Just make those really utilitarian yeah. scenes instead of, you know, carrying right. this other way. Right, and the thing weight. is they're using him, they're just using him as a foil for Sousa. Sousa is clearly the main event, you know, in these romantic stories, right? Um, so using him as some kind of foil, and we have that really wonderful scene uh, later on in the run of the episodes where Jarvis is trying to be Peggy's girlfriend, which I love with my whole freaking heart. Yes. Um, between Dr. Wilkes's incandescent smile and Chief Seuss's eyes. Like, I love that he's trying to girlfriend her, you know, <laughs> because she doesn't have girlfriends. Right. So he's trying to have these conversations with her and he's not judging her. 
You know, he's not like, oh, my God, you slut, you whore. There are two men who like you, which in the 40s is kind of a thing that would happen. Um, He's just sympathizing with her and saying this has got to be a really hard choice for you. You know, so we have all that like wonderful stuff from Jarvis talking about these two. But let's face it, there is no choice. She's in love with Sousa and Wilkes is pretty. You know, but Wilkes is pretty and he's, you know, pretty and brilliant and like all of these wonderful things. I'm not saying that Wilkes doesn't have stuff going for him, but they don't have that history. They don't have that background. They really just met, you know, Um, and he's got a very serious situation that he has to deal with. And that should be his focus. And I feel like it undercuts. We have this brilliant guy who is in this situation where he got the opportunity that somebody in his position, that a black man in his position would not ordinarily get. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and they even call that out later with Whitney when Whitney's talking to him. You know, they pull us into these positions because they know that we're going to be so grateful that we're not going to question anything. Mm -hmm. And for Wilkes, that has got to be such a shot to the gut. Right. Because you're in this world of the American dream. If you work hard enough, if you're smart enough, if you, you know, do well enough, you can do anything. It's not true. You know, and so here he was actually able to achieve something that most people in his position would not have been able to do. And she calls it out as like, they're just using you. They put you there so that you wouldn't ask questions because you'd be so grateful to be in that position. That discussion is a fabulous discussion. I love that discussion. I think that actually looks at all of this in a way that it could, it should be looked at. So I think Wilkes is seriously underserved as a character by what we do with him, like in these episodes, making his entire focus all about Peggy rather than about himself. We have that wonderful moment with Whitney you know, where she actually calls it out. So we have like just a few moments where they're actually talking about this stuff in a way that is really insightful, really interesting. And hey, is she going to turn Wilkes? Yeah. You know, yeah. which is another interesting part of that. Um, but I just am so disappointed by what they did with his character in this because I wanted more for him as a character. I am also going to use Wilkes as a doorway through which to walk into one of my unpopular opinions. Oh, great. I love it. Most of the romance going on in at least season two of Peggy Carter is garbage, including the stuff between Peggy and Sousa. Uh Uh-huh. I'm ready to fight about this. All right. I like Peggy and Sousa, but I am all for hearing your opinions on that. Well, I like Peggy and Sousa in theory, right? Mm -hmm. Like, but the stuff that's, this is, this will be jumping around a little bit because we're going to talk about how I really feel like uh, Violet's response to Sousa being concerned for Peggy is yeah. um, not supported by the fiction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sousa and Peggy are, uh, we don't know what happened with them. Something vaguely romantic happened and then they yeah, were separated. Yeah, we don't know. We don't yeah. know. But mm-hmm. what we do know is that basically the entire time Sousa's been on the West Coast, he's been falling in love with Violet and she knows a that Peggy is his friend she knows b Mm -hmm. that he is Peggy's boss and that c they have a very dangerous job and so when he brings this person in who is his subordinate and friend who's on death's door and she's like oh my god he actually loves her that's terrible it's bad no you're right that's not properly motivated Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and it's and I don't think I don't actually think Sousa is that conflicted about it mm-hmm. until Violet breaks off the engagement. And I don't like that development either. Like uh, Violet's the instrument of her own destruction. I don't like that. And 
uh, setting Wilkes up as a foil for Sousa is just the exact same kind of like really yes. sketchy, shaky scaffolding at this point. It was fine in the first right. act. But yeah. now it's garbage. And I don't. So like in theory, I like Peggy and Sousa as a couple. Kind of. Mm -hmm. They've never been quite the ship that I know they are for a lot of the fandom. But I especially think that everything floating around the romance of season two is not good. It's not good. Well, we've got two faulty love triangles. Now, here's the thing. A lot of people have problems with love triangles. I don't. I think that they're fine. They're, they're Conflict engines. Yeah, they're conflict yeah. engines. They're great. But you have to do it right. You know, and the thing is that for a love triangle to work, then the person at the at the pinnacle of the love triangle, the one making the choice, has to have two choices that are both great. Now, with Wilkes, because we've damaged Wilkes' character so much, mm -hmm. he's not a great choice for Peggy. Plus, she just met him. I mean, he's he's like great in a lot of ways, but also like the fact that this guy, like, I'm sorry, but if there was a guy in my house who was non-corporeal and was dealing with being pulled into hell, and he was making eyes at me i'd be like what the fuck is wrong with you dude like priorities you know? are you are you literally unhinged right now why are yeah. you focused on me listen i know i'm rocking but you are right. dying in an inexplicable right. manner refocus <laughs> and i find it weird that yes. you're thinking about me at this moment you know it's creepy like that would, it would be creepy it would be <laughs> creepy you know so um so peggy looking between wilkes and susan now she had a thing for susan we still don't know what happened but that whatever this mysterious thing is that split them up and sent him back into los angeles it's got to be something right um so that's enough romantic conflict for them we don't need additional romantic conflict with these third parties now the thing about Violet, and this is one of the things that I, I love, and we'll be talking about this in a little bit, the way that when Peggy comes in, you know, Violet sees how Sousa feels about her, has this yep. revelation, but in no way does she not treat Peggy. She even says, Peggy, maybe you should stay here for a few days. Like, she is ready to take care of her. She is doing her job. She's also being a compassionate human being, and we don't have that, like, you know, we've talked about this before, with women who just suddenly go at each other over a man. You know, like, we don't have any of that and I love it. Yes. Um, the fact that Violet is breaking off the engagement with him um, rather than asking him a question. You know, coming to him and saying... I saw the way that you looked at Peggy and I want you to tell me the truth because if we're going to be together. You have to tell me the truth here. You know, are you in love with her? Um, you know, and if you are, maybe that's not a problem because you know what? People get over that shit, right? right. Um, if, it's, if it's not a thing, if you guys, you know, but like that's the conversation to have instead of being like, I'm sorry, I saw you look with affection upon the face of another woman who is your good friend <laughs> and was mortally wounded. And so we are done, mister. Yeah. Like that is a ridiculous thing. And it also gives Sousa absolutely no agency in what's going on. If she said to him, are you in love with her? You know, and you can be in love with two people at the same time. It's not mutually exclusive. You know, I mean, he can be in love with both Violet and Peggy. And Violet's pretty freaking awesome. Like, I Absolutely. like Violet. I would love for her to hang around. She's fantastic, you know. Um, but if she said something like, are you in love with her? And Sousa said yes. And then she said, well, maybe this isn't the time for you to marry somebody else. You know, like, maybe this is, maybe you need to think about this for a little bit first. And if he realized that he, you know, was still in love with Peggy and that Peggy was the one that he wanted, you know, and actually had some agency, 
you know, and made his own decision like a man. But then that makes him look like an idiot because he proposed to Violet like two days before. Like, is he that? Yes. Does he have that little self-awareness that he was going to propose to this woman who he also cares for deeply? Yeah, I don't think he does. That's the thing. Like, they have painted themselves into a corner to create this romantic conflict that we don't actually need. Look at how much stuff is going on in this season. (laughs) Exactly. Here's the thing. When other more important life and death things are happening, Wilkes, right? Then yeah. maybe you don't focus on the smoochies. And they had something. If we had some idea of what happened between them that was so bad that it sent Sousa marching to Los Angeles, we have help. a sense of that romantic mm-hmm. conflict. We don't need other people. You do not need a love triangle here. And the thing is, this is why love triangles get a bad name, because they're used as cheap romantic conflict instead of really you know, interrogating one person who who has this internal conflict, who has this choice to make between two great people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is how a love triangle should be used, you know? Um, but Sousa asking Violet to marry him now looks like he was running, like he couldn't run far enough away from Peggy. Peggy ended up coming out to LA. And now that Peggy's here, he's got to marry somebody else because he has to get away from this love he has for her. If you love her that much, freaking man up and deal with it, mm-hmm. you know? Admit it, deal Deal with it. Work your shit out, Sousa. You know, um, but instead he's like, well, she said, you know, she thought I was in love with you. And so then the two of them start to kiss. And I'm like, it makes Sousa look like look like somebody who is not Peggy's equal, you know, is not good enough for Peggy on the other side of the, the love triangle. Honestly, it lessens everyone involved. Yes, I it mean, does. nobody is made to look better in that Sousa looks indecisive. Violet looks overreactionary. Peggy mm-hmm. looks right on the edge of predatory that like during this moment when he's trying to figure out what to do and right. they're on an op, she's going to smooch Sousa. Like Wilts just looks like a Looney Tune. I mean, it, anyway, right. yeah, it's it. No one is served, including us. Yeah, I don't like it. And I mean, here's the thing. Here's the thing that I do, because I know what the writers intend. Like, I know what it is they want to do as opposed to what they're actually doing. So I headcanon <laughs> a lot of this shit right out. I'm like, no, that's just bad writing. That's not actual Sousa. So for me, like, I like Sousa and Peggy. I love this. I thought we were a team thing. We are a team. We're an amazing team. You know how I am. People who work well together. Man, yeah. you know, it gets me. It gets me where I live romantically, you know. Um, so I love that. Um, I love the way that they are together. I love the way that they work together. I love them working on this um you know the heist oh my god the heist we're going to talk about the heist in a minute and i'm going to lose my shit with happiness um so there's so much stuff going on that that actually does build the romance well that when this stuff happens i dismiss it i'm like nope that's not how i'm headcanoning this differently that's not how that happens so i just ignore the stuff that i don't like because i like the stuff that i like so much and you know when you're looking at a text you have to look fairly at the whole text. Mm-hmm. You can't just edit out the parts you don't like. <laughs> I know I'm doing that. I have that self-awareness that Sousa <laughs> apparently lacks. Um, yeah. I have that self-awareness. I know that I do that. So the romance works for me at the same time. Given the textual evidence, I 100% support anybody who's like, nope, and throws down the bullshit flag. Absolutely absolutely support it but it works for me because i just ignore the parts that are stupid (laughs) fair enough you're own those primary values 
I am owning my primary values. All right. So speaking of primary values, I have to say that one of the things I love most in this whole thing is Whitney Frost as a villain. Oh, um, I she, told you at the beginning, she's one of the oh, best villains in the MCU. I will fight you in the street over it. She's so good. She is so good. I love her getting the mice doing the experiments. I love the zero matter spreading in the crack on her face and she's smiling. She's getting off on it. She loves this. What are you? And she says, whatever I want. Uh, like This is a woman who has been denied her power coming into her power and freaking here for it. Like, I know she's evil. I know she's terrible. I know her eyes go from black to blue. And then she says, I need an atomic bomb. And that's not good. Like, <laughs> Those I are know all that. red flags. Red flags. I yes. know that. They're all there. I know she's I know she's bad news, but I love her so much. And I have to say, um, Curry Graham as Chadwick is so great at being so stupid, just this unbelievably punchable doofus, right? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I love this in the beginning with the dead director. And she's talking about her director who went missing and is probably dead. And she and he's just like, yeah, that'd be terrible for the campaign. Like, I love how he plays this character. I love how unbelievably stupid he is. Um <laughs> He just delights me in this role. And I think that the actor does such a fabulous job playing such a, a punchable idiot. And watching his growing horror at what Whitney oh, is becoming. Yeah. Yes. Not that she's bad, but that she might hurt him. That's his horror. <laughs> like, he doesn't care about evil. She yeah. is no longer someone he can control. He, she is no yes. longer hitched to his wagon. He's a little yeah. worried that he's hitched to hers, or maybe they have two different wagons, and he's not cool with it. <laughs> and he doesn't know how to run a wagon, and I'm not sure which where the <laughs> wheels go, and he's just so dumb. And then, But then I'm like, okay, how is this doofus able to, A, know which hats she has, you know, because they're women's hats. This idiot is not going to know that and then able to per pick out a perfect hat that perfectly matches her dress and covers the zero matter face chasm right and that it was right there and she didn't see it she is smarter than him by i mean i can't even say a mile what is like a space measurement like a parsec is that like yes i mean she is so much smarter than him how is it possible that he picks out this perfect hat that matches her dress that covers her face and she didn't see it you know, I say that that's politician crazy. powers. Maybe. Like he saw a complicated know. situation that he needed to diffuse. And that's the thing that makes him a useful idiot, but good politician. Right. And he was just like, I guess so. I have just the thing. I mean, it's yeah. No, it's I like that. She's really uh, preoccupied with. Yes. Bigger issues and that he is able to. I mean, it kind of shows you how he was probably able to woo her a little at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Because I think discovering that she used to seriously date Manfredi and that he loved her deeply and abidingly yeah. opens up some very interesting Whitney Frost things. Very oh, interesting. I don't think I don't think anybody has wooed Whitney. I mean, they they thought they were. Whitney well, has sure. chosen. Yeah. Whitney is the queen of the useful idiot. Whitney <laughs> runs every show she's in. And I love this at the end after she kills half the council and eats her husband with zero matter and lets out a little burp. She says, I have chosen you to be a part of my council as long as you remain loyal and of use to me. And I am so there for Whitney. I love her so much. I love her speech to Wilkes at the end. 
you oh, know, yeah. where she's talking about all of all of that stuff, what it is to be a woman, what it is to be a black man, how they used us. We can take the power back. I love all of it. And this is what makes such a great villain. She's such a fantastic villain because even as you're like, yeah, no, she's evil. Like, I get she's bad. She's bad. I know she's bad. She's totally <laughs> evil. But I love her and I kind of want her to win because goddamn it, like she is she is a woman claiming her goddamn power and I am here for it. Yeah, it's proper super villainy too. Like it has the right mm-hmm. air of theatricality yes. to it. And yes. when she is delivering speeches, I mean, and you can backfill this that she's an actress and she knows, but it's also like she knows she's delivering a speech. Yeah. You know, she knows oh, yeah. what she's doing. And oh, I yeah. love it. Yes, very oh, good. Oh, my God. She's so fantastic. Um, another thing that I absolutely love, of course, is always Jarvis. Jarvis has my heart, Jarvis is my soul. I love Jarvis so much he makes me so happy and this makes me like the fact that that you know Iron Man named his suit Jarvis makes me love Iron Man more I love Jarvis (laughs) so much that it actually you know trickles out into other areas Um, I love him doing the angry American cop I love the goofy Jarvis as he falls down after getting hit with the um, (laughs) with the tranquilizer dart Um, oh mommy it's the biggest horsey ever like he is so adorable when he's diffusing the bomb when he's running around with uh with Dottie trying to find Dottie at the fundraiser and he says I am presently engaged in a frenzied search for her while talking into my glasses like a madman I I love everything about him I love when he tries to girlfriend Peggy I love how he is with Anna um I love him talking to Peggy about all of the stuff that's going on with her and like making sure that she's emotionally okay he's caring for her emotionally you know while she's doing all of these like crazy things um and at the end oh god when Anna gets shot and Jarvis Jarvis has been in like a number of pickles. We saw him sweat when he had to pull out those uranium cores, which by the way, he did like a boss. Oh my God. <laughs> Didn't even wet himself, right? I would have I would have totally needed a new pair of pants after that. He was amazing. You know, uh, he does all this stuff. He's so cool. He's so great. He's still vulnerable throughout it all, even while pulling off this amazing stuff. And then at the end, when Anna gets shot, you just see the core of Jarvis. When he realizes that she's in danger and he's like, no, we're going. He's just driving, you know, while Peggy is sitting there in the car, you know, mm-hmm. um, he is. I, I just I love all of it. And when they sit together and she takes his hand while they're waiting for Anna to get out of surgery. It is so beautiful, so wonderful. I love him. I love this friendship. He makes me happy in my soul, Joshua. He just does. No, he's a bright shining star of joy in this show. I yes. really love that he is. Um, this is a this is a concept that I kind of first thought of in terms of Indiana Jones. You know mm-hmm. that um, I really like heroes that are three quarters competent. <laughs> and, yes, and that's yes. Jarvis all over. Like, like he right. always has the tiger by the tail and is just barely mm-hmm. hanging on. You know, I know, um, but he's hanging on, and that's what makes it so great. And when you know, it breaks, yeah. when he mm-hmm. breaks, that's mm-hmm. when we know it's very serious. Like when he's kind yes. of freaking out about Dottie being missing, we're like, yes, that is very concerning, you know. Yes. Um, and yeah. when he is breaking down over Anna, we're like, yes, we are with you. This is a moment to break down. Um, I mean, the fact that he's always like toe on the edge of panic is part of the reason that when he panics, it works really well. He's great. 
Yeah, no, he's absolutely fantastic. And for everybody out there who loves Jarvis and loves to listen us talk about Jarvis, this episode of Listen Up A-Holes is brought to you by our generous patrons who keep Chipperish Media going so we can produce all the podcasts you love, like Still Pretty about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Still Dead about Angel the Series, Orgasm about Explosive Inspiration, our Star Wars podcast, Metaphors Be With You, and How Story Works, a free college-level course in narrative theory. If you enjoy what we do here at Chipperish, please consider going to patreon.com slash chipperish and throwing in your support even a few dollars a month makes a huge difference and thank you so much to all of our patrons out there who make everything we do here possible we cannot thank you enough thank you all right so joshua uh, next, um, we've talked a little bit about Peggy and Sousa, you know, as like a bad romance. Um, <laughs> but I do really love them as a team working together. Yes. I love them whenever they're together on screen. I love them. I love that moment where he's like, I still don't know why I had to take the punch. And he, she goes, it's the least you could contribute. He's already throttled me twice when they got the henchman, <laughs> you know, um, when they're playing this off each other. I love the way he trusts her. I love he questions her like he questioned her with the malaria thing, mm-hmm. you know, and she was like, nope, this is what we're giving him a bad cold. That's all we're doing, you know, um, but she was doing this. He plays along with her. He trusts her so completely, um, you know, and when he when Peggy was skewered by the rebar. Also, there's something that I got to kind of call out a little bit. And this is not about Peggy and Sousa specifically, but it's just something <laughs> that came to mind. And I'm going to say it now because I'll forget if I don't say it now. Um when Peggy gets skewered by the rebar, there is a moment in Buffy the Vampire Slayer in which that happens to a character. It's almost the exact same shot, right? Um, and skewered in the exact same part mm-hmm. of the body. Um, so I'm like, okay, somebody here has watched Buffy. Then we go into an episode called The Atomic Job, right? <laughs> well, this is actually at the end of The Atomic Job. We're in an episode called The Atomic Job, which, of course, is a reference to leverage, right? Because we've got this heist going on. Mm-hmm. We, we oh, use yeah. the the shots like everything you know we've got to steal uranium cores there's this whole thing about you know we're going to steal a mountain or whatever it is they're going to steal in any particular episode of leverage by the way if you don't watch leverage go watch leverage you can thank me later um it's fantastic i love that show if you loved the atomic job if you love the heist that they pulled off here you're gonna love leverage it's so great um but there's just something about these uh, that one episode where i'm like okay this is an homage to everything that whoever this writer is loves because (laughs) Every now and then, and I think you were talking about this on another uh, podcast recently, Mm -hmm. but every now and then you get to see the influences of the author or the writer or the creator. Like they just wear them on their sleeve for this episode and don't care. Um, And yeah, yeah, you're definitely, you've definitely got that here with your designated hero skewering area. And Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and especially the atomic job. Like we're we're doing a heist, everybody, let's do leverage. Okay, cool, high five. Like no arguments in the writer's room. Absolutely. It is a love letter to leverage. It really is. We have that slight moment where it's like a nod toward Buffy. Like people who've seen Buffy are going to be like, oh, hello, Cordelia. Like we're going to, uh-huh. you know, we're going to call that out. Right. Um, but this is definitely a love letter. The Atomic Job is a love letter to leverage. And I am here for it, especially because of Rose. Oh, my God. I okay. love Rose so much. Let me say I need to recant yes. something that I have previously yes. said about Rose. And it's not bad. I was just Mm -hmm. forgetting how this season went. And I was kind of saying Rose works at the desk and she is actually very happy to work at the desk. And Mm -hmm. here's the thing. 
I am clearly 100% wrong. And I actually think, this is this is where my, my own personal headcanon comes in, that in the first season, she was. And uh-huh. then yes. Peggy went and peggied around the joint all season. Uh-huh. And then she was not. You know, so... Yes. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to recant that. I'd said that on mic in a previous episode, and I am so wrong because Rose was good to go. Rose is fantastic. When Rose takes off in the middle of the heist and is like, I got this, and goes and beats the <laughs> shit out of these guys, I am like, yes, 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 Rose, do it. I loved absolutely everything except one thing. Yeah, except I know. Except one thing. The nonsense with Samberly, the Ugh. did you like my pie, Gross. the response from him, that was you, your pie was in me, pie was good. Oh, just shut up, just shut up, just shut up. His whole like weird, gross crush on her. I mean, okay, look, it's Rose. Anybody who's in a room with Rose for more than 30 seconds and is not in love with her is clearly broken <laughs> at some soul level, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. But, but I mean, like the way that he was so like weird and gross about it and when she was you know do, he's he's had the training he goes through this whole thing about i'm a scientist but i've had the training and i've gone through the thing and yet when he's out in the field she says my husband and he's like a husband oh right you're my wife and then he's just you know playing that it's just it's all real so aside from that and that's not even rose's fault aside from you know did you like my pie which well, you know was yeah, a bad the, line to give her the gentle um, seduction is rose's fault and it's terrible but everything else yeah. is samberly everything else that rose does is freaking fantastic i got this you guys keep going i'm gonna go take out all of these guys i love it <laughs> oh when she turns around and she sees the guy she's like howdy cowboy oh my god i could have a show that is nothing but peggy and rose Like, that would be, I would love that. And if they ever do manage to bring back Agent Carter, and I hope that somehow, someday, some way, Veronica Mars came back for a fourth season. Anything can happen. It's a whole new world. Um, If they ever do that, Rose has got to be a huge part of it. And then she comes back from beating up all these guys, and she just has a knife in her hand. We never look directly at it. We don't say a word about it. She's just got this knife. No, she 100% shanked some dudes. That happened. Oh, yeah. Totally. Prison totally. yard style. Yeah. That's. Oh, yeah. yeah. You don't uh, fuck with Rose. <laughs> because there's a, a small section we do where I pitch uh, shows that will never actually happen, but should. Yes. <laughs> uh, the third season of Peggy Carter should absolutely jettison all of these useless men and focus yeah. on a power trio of Peggy, Rose and Dottie. And maybe it should also be a little bit of a love triangle. I'm just saying. Oh, my God. God, the very idea of that brings such joy to my soul. Peggy, Rose, and Dottie, and there's a little bit of a love triangle in there. Yes, yes. Sign me up. Take my money now. Hulu, Netflix, get on that. I mean, Jesus. That is absolutely what you got to do. Which brings me to overall how much I love how the women are written in this show. Um, I love Whitney as a villain. Um, I love Whitney seeing Peggy and going, oh, you, you're good. You know, Um, I love that the man is irrelevant in that showdown in the beginning. Um, I love that, you know, Sousa brings a skewered Peggy to Violet and Violet is jealous. I mean, aware that, you know, Peggy is a threat, I guess. I wouldn't really classify Violet as being jealous in this in this nasty way that they write women being jealous and yeah, fighting over men. Yeah, yeah. She doesn't, you know, it's not catty. It's not immediately adversarial. It is concerning because these are people she cares about. Exactly. And she doesn't take it out on Peggy. 
which is what we do with these women yeah. where they start fighting with each other. She looks Susa in the eye and says, dude, what the fuck, right? Mm-hmm. Which, okay, fair enough, right? Um, so I like the fact that she holds Susa responsible for that, not Peggy, because it is Susa who is responsible for everything that's going on here, who is responsible for asking her to marry him when he's in love with another woman um, without telling her you know, that this is the situation and, you know, I'm in love with Peggy at the moment, but I'll get over it and I like you better. You know, I mean, that would have been acceptable. I don't know that she would have accepted his proposal, but it would have been honest. You mm-hmm. know, you could have respected mm-hmm. that. Um, but Violet, you know, with this woman who is, you know, in this way, a threat to everything that Violet is just, I mean, she just got engaged, right? You know, um, so she's she's kind of a threat to Violet and Violet takes care of her, makes sure that she's well, gives her that medical attention, you know, does everything for her, offers to keep her in the house and take care of her, you know. Um, She's fantastic. One last thing on Violet also, let's remember, she's not a doctor. Right. And this is not to denigrate nurses at all, but there is a Mm -hmm. different... It's not the nurse's job to remove rebar from people and sew their punctured intestines back together. You know, this is definitely the first time she's ever done that. And she does not freak out. It's no man. She's fantastic. Violet. I could see Violet in that show, too. I would actually pull her in, you know, the hell with Sousa and go with Peggy. I think that that's how that should go. Um, So I love all of that. Dottie, of course, is amazing. I love Dottie, you know, being pulled into the good guys team and yet never really being a good guy. I love when she takes off her hat and leaves it on the sink and is like, I'm going to find out what's going on here. This Mm. is weird shit and I'm going to know what it is. Um, I love the way that she stands up to Vernon Masters, that Vernon Masters is in no way even her equal. She laughs at him. And the thing that's so great about Dottie, she takes out Jack Thompson. She takes out five guys. She throws a guy out the window. He lands on the truck and destroys all the listening equipment in the truck like she is so badass and what I love is that when you have somebody like the thing that the monsters are afraid of is something you're afraid of right there's that transfer of power there's that transfer of villainy right that just Mm -hmm. comes right off because Dottie is afraid of Whitney you know so when Dottie is afraid of somebody you know that that person is bad freaking news you know um so i love that they did that villainy transfer so they took all of dottie's you know like bad assery and then just compounded it into whitney in this really effective transfer of power that i just loved i had a little game with myself during that scene which was so good where they would yeah. cut to dottie's eyes and the first time she was scared and then they cut yes. away and then they cut back and she is making the same eyes and i was like now she's into it And then they cut Uh away and came back and I was like, now she's scared again. And they cut back and cut away. And I was like, and now she's into it again because Dottie's not okay, Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I I, I mean, doing the exact same eyes, but I was just having a little game with myself there. And it and it kind of made the scene even better for me. Oh, my God. It was amazing. And when Whitney, like, does the zero matter and then draws it back so she knows how much it hurts, but she's still there. And this moment, congratulations, Miss Underwood. You're still useful to me. Man. Whitney is so badass, and I just absolutely 
love her. I love how there's all these men around and she doesn't give a fuck about any of them, but she is focused on Peggy because she knows that Peggy is the business, Mm -hmm. right? You know, like these women, these women are looking at each other and you have game recognizing game and all these men are running around in the background, (laughs) right? But these women are running the show. And the thing is, is that like, I, you know, I am not anti-man. Like I love men. Some of my best friends are men. Joshua, you're one of my best friends. I love you dearly. You're also a guy. It's not a thing that I have against men. It's that we have so many, again, raindrop hurricane. We have so many stories in which women are these background players that have to be damseled, rescued by the men. You know, all of that kind of stuff. Fridge to motivate a male story. Um, And women are usually the inconsequential background players in these adventure stories and these, you know, cop stories and all of this kind of stuff. Right. And here we have the exact opposite of that, where women are in power, where women are the ones who are making things happen. Um, And I absolutely love all that. I love Anna. I mean, Anna, here she is, you know, she's Jarvis's wife, right? But she's not relegated to like just the role of being the one who nags at Jarvis. She says, you know, I can see how much you need this. So I can permit you your adventure, Mr. Jarvis, but you must also allow me to wring my hands from time to time because she loves him. Mm -hmm. You know, Um, that is such a wonderful expression of her being able to be, you know, kind of in that traditional the, the little woman sits back and worries role while at the same time taking complete you know, autonomy over that, you know, she is, I am going to permit this for you. I am not going to ask you not to do these things that matter to you. And I'm not going to resent you. And I'm not going to passive aggressively pout because you're doing something I don't want you to do, but I'm going to ask you to allow me to worry. Right. That is such a beautiful expression of love and respect within that relationship. And I absolutely love it. So it's not even that women have to be. This is one of the things, the problems that we have with this idea of the strong female character, quote unquote, Mm. which has basically gotten bastardized into a leather cat suit and can kick a guy in the face, you know. Right. And that's not what a strong female character is. Strong female character is written as though she is a person and a human in her own right. You know, um, without reverting to these tropes that we have for women, the nagging wife, the passive aggressive manipulator, um, you know, the jealous, um, you know, jealous of the women, the cat fighting, all that kind of stuff. Um, So we are getting away from all of these. We're not even going near any of those spaces in this run, you know, with Peggy Carter. And I absolutely love it is such a wonderful feeling. It's like that moment you go outside and there's just all this like fresh air. Yeah. You know, as a woman, when you see women portrayed this way over and over and over and over again, the message you get is that this is how women are when you know, because you are one, that that's (laughs) not how women are and that's not how women have to be. Um, And so when you get like that over and over and over again, those messages, over and over and over again it makes you feel like the world sees everything differently from the way that you know it to be when you see in your stories and this is true I'm sure I mean I experienced this as a woman but anybody from any you know marginalized um, identity is going to have this because those traditionally are stories have been told by white men um, and so because of perspectives from white people and white men um, we end up seeing everybody through that kind of lens in which they are not entirely human. They are just this identity and a, and a collection of stereotypes, you know, um, a reusable Trader Joe's, you know, shopping bag full of stereotypes is basically <laughs> what everybody else gets, you know, gets um, boiled down to. So when you are part of that and you, you see those stories over and over again, and it makes you doubt 
the way in which you see yourself and the people that you know who are also from these identities, you see this reflected in your stories for once, you know, that women don't mm -hmm. have to be manipulative, that women don't have to be naggy, that women don't have to be jealous, that they don't have to fight with each other over a freaking man, you know. Um, when you see all that relief, women can chase their own power, even in villainy. You know, yes. even with Whitney, Whitney is a breath of fresh air. She is chasing her power. She understands what happened to her. She knows what's going on. She knows who she's dealing with and she is fighting back and it's wonderful. So all of this, just like seeing this, you know, as a woman watching the show, it is such a wonderful, like breath of fresh air. And we're having this. I, I talked about this a little bit when we were talking about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as well, because I feel the same way about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Mm -hmm. You know, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. does that a lot, too. Um, I, I think I think this, you know, season of Agent Carter does it on steroids because it's all women. Yes. It's all women in power. You and know? it's all women um, in different yeah. positions. Like on Agents of yes. S.H.I.E.L.D., they all tend to be agents, you know. Right. Here, we're heroes. getting to see yeah. the actress turned villain, the agent, mm -hmm. the woman who yes. is keeping the home fires burning, the yep. competent medical professional. It's Yeah, it's so many different yeah. opportunities to see that. Yeah. No, it's it's really, really wonderful. Um, so uh, I don't know, Joshua, I think we're probably about done. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you wanted to talk about with these episodes? I want to speak to your perspective on the women from the view of a serious genre author, right? Like where I yes. am all about the tropiest genre business. That's what I want, yes. you know. Um, right. But there are a couple that really get redeemed in a way by the by the way the women act in the the set of episodes because yeah anna is allowed to be the wife who is at home yeah. worried about her husband but what that throws into kind of stark relief for me is that that's usually jarvis for peggy right yes yes we draw attention to the fact that it's a gender swapped situation for Jarvis by showing, you know, the best possible version of the woman, mm -hmm. you know, at home. Worrying. Yes. Um, the yeah. other one that I think is just fantastic. And one reason that Peggy really stands out for me in the MCU as a whole is that we have mm -hmm. a long tradition of male action heroes telling the power structure to stick it so that they can go out and fight the real problem, you know? Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, your lethal weapons, this, the eighties uh, yeah. rogue cop, you know, movie was right. a huge, huge part mm -hmm. of this. The, the problematic thing you don't want to think too hard about those is that they do get the job done, but there's all this collateral damage and they probably right. should have actually listened to their bosses. You know, mm -hmm. in this case, Peggy essentially being a rogue agent works on a yeah. different level because her bosses cannot hear her, will not hear her. Right. You know, when mm -hmm. she has to go off book, it's literally yeah. because she has to. Like she knows right. things that are important that no one is listening to because she's the only one who knows them. And I mean, that is mitigated somewhat by Sousa, obviously, in this yes. season. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it really does like that rogue agent or rogue cop thing that is near and dear to my heart, but is also like painfully problematic to me in, in the year of our yeah. war 2019. Mm -hmm. Oh, it fixes all of it as far as I'm concerned. This is beautiful. It's pretty good. Yeah. It's pretty good stuff. I really. Oh, and one more thing, though, that I want to call out is uh, Ken Marino as uh, Joseph Manfredi, the uh, side 
sidekick mobster guy who's in love with Whitney. Um, he is, I, I've loved him ever since Veronica Mars. He mm-hmm. played Vinny Van Lowe in Veronica Mars and stole my heart back then. And now every time I see him, a jolt of delight goes through me. Um, he is lovely and wonderful. So Ken Marino makes my heart go pitter-pat. I absolutely adore that guy. He's so much fun. He's a good example of what I'm talking about also, because look at the contrast. Yeah. When he becomes Whitney's new right-hand man instead of yeah. her now deceased husband, he mm-hmm. is fine with it. Like he, Oh, he loves it. We also yeah. have a man recognizing game, you know. Yes, um, yes. It, yeah, it's it's very good. Like it just reframes the situation. We've had this guy, Whitney and Chadwick got along fine, you know. Mm-hmm. They they knew their roles in the space, but Chadwick still thought he was the, you know, senior partner or whatever. Man Freddie right. knows damn good and well he isn't and he's cool with it, and that is awesome. I know. I love it. I absolutely love it. All right, so Joshua, what's your favorite part? Well, I've betrayed my love of proper supervillainy enough that you should probably already figure out it's Whitney deciding she had enough t- masculine bullshit and just doing a hostile takeover of the council. <laughs> I love that. That is really, really super good. That's a great moment. <laughs> you know she ate the people that wouldn't listen to her and left the guys that would. She right. knew exactly yeah. what she was doing. It's amazing. Yeah, I know. It's so great. Lonnie, what about yourself? Oh, the heist. Sure. The heist. The heist. The whole thing. Even the the stupid slow motion Reservoir Dogs shot. I don't even care. I don't even care. I love it all so much. I'm actually okay with that. I'm, mm-hmm. It's usually, it's been done enough. Friends, we can also put a moratorium on that. Um, yes. And if that had been the only time that we showed Samberly to be a big goofball, it would have been perfect. Because, right. you know, mm-hmm. that's what it's, that we subvert it. It's, yeah. Uh, the heist is also quite good the heist is amazing if you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in come find us on twitter lonnie is at lonnie diane rich and i am at joshua unruh and the hashtag is listen up a-holes both Chipperish Media and Pulp Diction Productions are entirely supported by listeners like you who are presently engaged in a frenzied search for Dottie while talking into their glasses like a madman. Show your support by visiting our Patreon pages or by leaving a great review on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for more people to find us and join in the conversation. The links to Apple Podcasts and both our Patreon pages are easy to find right there in the show notes. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Listen Up A-Holes. We'll be back next time to discuss the end of Agent Carter Season 2. Until then, you know, we're not in the movie business, but we think you're going to need a lot more makeup to cover that up. Frost brings in a mobster named Manfredi to be her new sidekick, and he pulls Masters out of his intellectual interrogation with Dottie. She Ineffectual. Te- oh, what the hell, Joshua? Okay. <clears throat> his intellectual interrogation. Uh, Bishop, Bishop to <laughs> yeah, Black Three. Masters is a lot of things. Intellectual ain't one of them. That is true. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> you know, again, like here he is, not given everything that he could be given. That fucking guy cannot get his muffler. I swear. <laughs> I to God. actually heard that. I don't know. He drives by every time. I don't know what it is. I think he's in love with somebody on my block and just drives past her house all day long. Fantastic. I don't know. Anyway. So let me go back to that.